0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Philippians and chapter 1. Philippians and chapter 1. Once you get to chapter 1, go ahead and jump verse, down to verse 27. We're going to read 127 through 218 together this morning. This is part 4 of our Dearest Place on Earth series, exploring biblical church membership. We pray it's been fruitful for you thus far. Um... Philippians 1, through 218, it will be behind me on the screen in my translation as well. I'm on the New American Standard Bible um, again, and so you can follow along there. Let's go ahead and read this together. God's Word says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too, from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for His sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me, to one. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love if there is any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Amen. This is God's word. and May God write, it's eternal truce on all of our hearts. It's hard to believe that it's been nearly over 20 years since the biggest, most expensive, most lucrative movie up to that point, Titanic, was released. Can you guys believe it's been over 20 years since Titanic came out? Funny enough, now it ranks all the way down at number 44 on the list of most expensive movies to make. But at the time, people went in droves, didn't they? To see a movie that would end up winning 11 Academy Awards, it was praised for its attention to detail, an impressive replica of that doomed ship. But it wasn't really the cost of production, nor even the accuracy of the ship that drew people to see the film. It was the love story, wasn't it? Between the wealthy Rose and the poverty-stricken Jack that drove people in. Reflected on this and Noting the Western individualistic relational priorities it portrays, Joseph Hellerman in his essential book I wish everybody would read called When the Church Was a Family says this. Listen to what he says. He says, the interaction between Titanic's main characters, Jack and Rose, epitomizes Western romance at its best. Jack is a scrappy but charming street kid who is on the great ship only because he won a boarding pass in a poker game. Rose belongs to the upper echelon of British society. She's engaged to be married to a man from her own social stratum and whom she is traveling in first-class accommodations. The storyline makes it perfectly clear that Rose has no affection for her fiancé. In fact, the fellow is portrayed as arrogant, obnoxious individual. In a memorable scene, Rose's mother reminds her daughter that the arranged marriage is in the best interest of the family. It seems that Rose's father died after squandering away his fortune, so for Rose's mother and her family, the impending marriage represents the only hope of maintaining their wealth and preserving their social status. Rose has been set up with a man for whom she has absolutely no affection in order to guarantee an honorable future for her extended family. But then one evening, Rose meets Jack on the deck of the ship, and the encounter ignites the flame of a romantic fling that serves as the main storyline for the rest of the movie. Rose is caught in a quandary. She loves Jack, but she is engaged to a highly unappealing man whom she is obligated to marry for the sake of her family. Whom will Rose choose? Jack, of course. If Rose had chosen otherwise, the movie simply would not have worked for the tens of millions of American viewers who followed the tragic tale. We are quite unmoved by the potential social dilemma confronting Rose's extended family. Rather, our sympathies lie with the heroine's own personal satisfaction. As I watched Titanic, says Hillerman, I could almost hear the thoughts running through the heads of viewers in the theater. Forget your family's fortune rose. Ignore your mother's wishes. Dump the rich jerk. Follow your heart. Go after Jack. But Titanic's love story would not be nearly as well received in cultures like those of the New Testament world if titanic were shown in first century palestine with aramaic subtitles the audience would be utterly appalled to discover that rose would even consider sacrificing the good of her extended family for her own relational satisfaction they would find roses fling with jack both risky and foolish first century jews would expect rose to marry the rich fellow and endure a life of emotional dissatisfaction If such an arrangement could somehow preserve the honor and social status of Rose's extended family, the markedly different reactions to a love story like the one portrayed in Titanic illustrate the most important differences between modern American culture and the social world of New Testament antiquity. We are individualists, our personal goals and individual satisfaction take first priority when we make critical life decisions. Isn't that true? For people in the world of the New Testament, however, the welfare of the group to which they belong took priority over their own individual happiness and relational satisfaction. And it is into this space that the idea of church membership was brought forth by Jesus and the apostles in what we call the New Testament. It was written into a space where family over self was the order of the day for most people in the Mediterranean world. Even still, The individualism of our day that makes what Hellerman said seem strange was also the order of the day for many in the Greco-Roman world. In fact, the Roman culture that our apostles had to write in, spread the gospel in, and died in was as sinful, of course, and nearly as individualized as our modern day. The fact of the matter is that texts like the one we are considering together this morning fly right into the face of not only our modern Western ideals, but our fallen human nature. Which is one of the reasons why it's so good, right? And why it's unlike anything the world has ever seen and why it can only be pursued by a power outside of ourselves. As we continue our series on biblical church membership, we want to continue to ask what church membership looked like and what it entails. We've seen... Yes, through texts like Matthew 18, and First Corinthians 12, and Hebrews 10, that church membership is indeed in the New Testament. We've seen that it is characterized by such things as a formal entrance into the church. That membership is a church declaring to the world who they can say through observing the lives and walk of their members that they are faithful followers of Jesus. We've seen that membership means physical attachment to the body, and the use of spiritual gifts, prioritizing attendance at the gathering, focusing on others and encouraging one another. We've seen that very little of what the Bible commands us to do in response to the gospel is possible unless we commit to a local church and physically intend the worship gatherings and involve our lives in it as much as possible. So today, we'll see four more marks of membership from this important text that was written. You'll note from chapter 1, verse 1, to a real-life local church. So four things. Number one, first, church membership means living out your heavenly citizenship. It means living out your heavenly citizenship. And this comes from 127 through 30. Now, some context will help us understand what's going on here, okay? Philippi was a Roman colony that was something like Rome in miniature, okay? It was also a place where Rome resettled many retired military members and veterans, okay? It had an emperor cult, which means worship of both past Caesars and present Caesars was common and even expected. And it is in this space that Paul tells the Philippians to stand firm, which is a military term, and strive together, another military term, for the gospel, even in light of persecution, Because, says Paul, not only have you been gifted, did you notice the way he says this? Not only have you been gifted the gospel, you've been gifted the honor of suffering for Christ. And it is in this space that Paul launches into this Christ hymn of 2, 5 through 11, which reminds them that Christ and his kingdom will outlast all rulers and kingdoms of the earth. Paul says that Christ, not Caesar is true, Lord, because Lord is a title that the emperor took on himself, fancying himself the benefactor of all within his rule. But Paul says, at the name of Jesus, and Jesus alone, will all people bow, including every Caesar who ever lived, past, present, and future. And now we can better understand what he's saying in one twenty-seven through 30. The Philippians are indeed being pulled this way and that, By virtue of their loyalty to Rome because it stands in stark contrast against their loyalty to Christ and kingdom. And for their stand with the gospel they will suffer because rejecting emperor worship was considered unpatriotic and even treasonous. They're refusing to say Caesar is Lord because they can only rightly confess that Jesus is Lord will bring them alienation from their neighbors and fellow countrymen. But, says Paul, your primary address, your primary loyalty, your true and lasting allegiance is to Christ. And if it costs you, then count yourself blessed for the honor of suffering for such a king because he will indeed vindicate you in the end since he is the true ruler and true lord it's why in 3 if you have your bible you'll get 317 through 20 he tells them not to set their minds on things of earth because they may indeed be citizens of rome but their true citizenship is in heaven rome will fall and here we stand looking back at what Rome having fell, Philippi will fall, Caesar dead, but the kingdom of Christ lasts forever. As such, the church is to remember where their true address is, which is in heaven where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. They must then, verse 27, live out the citizenship here and now. They must conduct themselves as citizens of the kingdom of Christ, which presupposes, right, that there are behaviors and ethical demands on the Christian in light of the gospel. And such things as selfish ambition, vain conceit, grumbling, and disputing are not in keeping with their heavenly citizenship, since they do not reflect the ethical character of the gospel, but of the world. And so you ask, what does this have to do with church membership? Well, I'm glad you asked. Church membership gives expression to living as heavenly citizens. You see what it says in 27 through 30? He isn't speaking to them as doing this thing alone. He's writing to a real church, and he soaks these exhortations in language of unity and community. Stand firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is clearly a community exercise. They are to advance the gospel and stand together, engaging side by side and helping one another persevere in the face of calls and pressures to compromise. Truly, even though verse 27 is clearly a call to the church, we are tempted to individualize it, aren't we? And that, we do that with a lot of passages in the New Testament that say it's about me as an individual. But how on earth do you take a stand and make advances for the gospel in your community when you try to do it by yourself? And how do you live out your heavenly citizenship if you weren't attached formally to an outpost, an embassy, a colony of the kingdom, which is what the local church is? You know, when Roman soldiers fought, and I bet you've seen this portrayed in movies and stuff. When they fought and they were in the midst of a battle, and they knew an onslaught of arrows was coming, do you know what they would do? I bet you've seen it. They would put their shields right next to one another, side by side, and they would form a wall that protected them from the front. Then those behind the front line would put their shields over their heads and their fellow soldiers' heads, and it would protect them from dangers from above. Roman historian Plutarch said that the resulting shape, which is a remarkable sight, looks very like a roof and is the surest protection against arrows which just glance off of it. Paul is calling for the church to stand side by side, stand firm, stand together, and their unity will help fend off the assaulting arrows of the persecutors and the devil. This is far, yes, this is far more advantageous than a lone soldier with their lone shield standing in a field trying to win the battle single-handedly. At some point, the arrow will find its mark because one cannot cover all sides by themselves. This is why, says Paul, you need to do this together. But he also wants the kingdom of Christ to be their primary concern in life. <clears throat> their heavenly citizenship should take first place in their priorities and concerns. And where is their, this primarily lived out? In the local church. Michael Horton says, the visible church is where you will find Christ's kingdom on earth. And to disregard the kingdom is to disregard the king. Church membership offers us not only the opportunity to not go at this thing alone, which, as noted last week, is spiritually disastrous, but affords us God's designed venue for us to live out our heavenly citizenship. How? Because the local church is an embassy of the kingdom of Christ. And church as embassy should replace in our minds any thought of the church as service provider or club. What's an embassy? It's an institution, says Jonathan Lehman, that represents one nation inside another nation. It declares its home nation's interests to the host nation, and it protects the citizens of home nation living in a host nation. He offers this helpful illustration. He says, I spent five months of college in Brussels, Belgium, during which time my passport expired. If I had tried to leave the country without renewing my passport, I would have gotten in trouble. I I no longer had valid documentation affirming that I was a U.S. citizen. One afternoon, I went to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels and had my passport renewed. The embassy didn't make me a citizen that afternoon, but it did officially affirm it. Even though I'm a U.S. citizen, I don't have the authority to officially declare myself as one before the nation's. Yet the embassy's affirmation gave me the ability to continue living in a foreign city protected by all the rights and benefits of my citizenship. A local church is a real-life embassy set in the present that represents Christ's future kingdom and his coming universal church. The church then advocates for one another. And advocates for a better kingdom in the face of many challengers vying for first place and lordship in the lives of people. Church membership and attendance of the gathering as life priority helps remind you that you are a citizen of a greater kingdom and that the concerns of this world must take second place to the concerns of the king. And church membership, as we saw in week one, is an affirmation of your heavenly citizenship, by your fellow citizens. Now you know as well as I do that our lives are full of noise. Yeah? And a million claimants for our time and affections. Isn't that true? It's a constant battle to keep our priorities as they ought which is Jesus as first and foremost object of affection and allegiance. A dangerous problem happens when we withdraw from the church, relegate it as optional, unimportant, secondary activity, or we approach it as consumers or with a selfish disposition that it ought to satisfy our desires. All of those things cause Jesus to cease to be our primary concern. He gets relegated to the fringes or as a means to an end. We all need to be reminded, and I'm including myself in this, that we are citizens of a better country. And we all need to be reminded that Jesus gave all for our salvation and actually expects all of us in return. We all need to be reminded that we are not the center of the faith, but Jesus is. We all need the glorious gospel put ever before our wandering eyes so that we never cease to be amazed by Jesus and reminded that he ought to be our prize and joy. J.T. English says, A scheme of the devil is to get people to renounce their faith in Christ, but another scheme of the devil is for people simply to grow bored with Christ. Satan will do anything he can to get you to take your eyes off Christ. Do you know that? He knows that you or your church do not have to renounce Jesus to, be, to cease to be useful in God's kingdom. You just have to grow bored with him. Many seem to have simply grown bored with Jesus. He isn't glorious enough to, to them to be the main point and purpose of their lives. He's simply a means to an end. I get heaven for praying a prayer, but he doesn't much mind if my de- devotion to him is marginal or expressed in ways outside of his design and commands. His design for our expression of citizenship in his kingdom is membership in his body in the local church, which, if its leaders are doing their job, is to remind you just how beautiful Jesus is and just how worthy. He is to be first place in your life and to equip you to live out your citizenship day to day. The late Richard Lovelace wrote an incredible book. It was published in 1979 called Dynamics of Spiritual Life. And he says this. I thought this was very poignant. And again, remember, this was written in the 70s. He said, the ultimate concern of most church members is not the worship and service of Christ in evangelistic mission and social compassion, but rather survival and success in their secular vocation. The church is a spoke on the wheel of life connected to the secular hub. It is a departmental subconcern, not the organizing center of all other concerns. Church members who have been conditioned all their lives to devote themselves to building their own kingdom and whose flesh naturally gravitates in that direction anyway find it hard to invest much energy in the kingdom of God. Isn't that true? Biblical church membership speaks into this common disposition to remind people living in an individualistic and narcissistic and consumeristic culture, us, that they can't do this thing alone. And that they need other Christians and other Christians need them. They must stand firm against a hostile world and push back against the darkness, but they stand firm with people who have Christ in common with them. They stand firm and strive together to fight against the darkness and win by the power of Christ. Biblical church membership reminds us at every turn that I am part of something bigger than myself and something bigger even than the whole world. That will outlast every other kingdom and every other king. Biblical church membership is an expression of my loyalty to Jesus. And my prioritizing of Jesus is shown through giving myself away sacrificially to his people, his body, his bride, his embassy. Everything Jesus calls us to do in response to the gospel of grace finds its expression in the church which is why he connects loving God with loving people. I can live out my Christianity by linking arms with fellow kingdom citizens and putting Jesus and them first in my life. This leads us to point number two, which is that church membership means being a uniter. Church membership means being a uniter. And we're considering this from 2 verses 1 through 5. You'll notice, look back down at your scripture, do you notice there are four, if any, statements. Do you see that? If any encouragement, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, then have the same mind, same love, united in the Spirit, intent on the same purpose. In other words... Paul says that if these various realities of life in Christ and the Spirit mean anything to you at all, then make my joy complete by being of one mind. Gordon Fee, in his incredible commentary, says, now he urges them to bring that joy to its full completion by advancing the gospel still more in Philippi, but to do so they must get their act together. The murmuring and bickering must cease. They must come to a common mind about life together in Christ and must show the same by their mutual love for one another. Essentially, he's saying this. If you believe what you say you do about Jesus, if it is true that from him you draw encouragement and comfort in love, And you have fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and if he is the source of your affection and compassion, then you must unite with your fellow church members. Standing as one soul, loving unconditionally, united by the same spirit, intent on one singular purpose of the gospel, and you will thus not do anything from selfishness or empty glory. You will, in humility, regard your fellow members as more important than yourselves. You will look out for what is in the best interest of the kingdom, and you can do this because you are in Christ, and Christ himself had this attitude, and the Spirit makes it possible for you to emulate Jesus. That's what he's essentially saying. Like, we tend to minimize or not take seriously division in the church. Isn't that true? But Paul says that division which is almost always the fruit of selfish ambition and empty conceit, is a declaration that you don't really believe what you say you do about Jesus. And the encouragement, love, spirit, and compassion that he bestows on the undeserving, or at the very least, those things haven't taken root in your heart, they are mere mental sense. That's what he's saying here. The appeal that Paul makes, says Fee, is for their unity and love toward one another to be based on their shared comfort and love that has its origins in God and found historical expression in Christ and the Spirit and has been shared mutually by them and for one another. Church membership, as it reminds Christians of the beauty of Jesus and that they are part of something bigger than themselves, is an exercise in maintaining the unity that the spirit creates through the sacrifice and vindication of Christ. It reminds us that Jesus had every right to grasp his divinity for his own ends, but instead willingly entered flesh and died a gruesome death for the sake of others. The this this sacrificial posture is to be emulated by the church and is the essence of biblical church membership. But again... What Paul calls for here is nothing at all what we desire or prefer. You tell me, isn't that true? In our There's no way we desire this. And it's nothing at all the disposition of the world and what the world teaches us to have. Just think of the, I want you to think of the opposite of what Paul says here divided, different priorities, different agendas, different purposes and goals, inwardly focused, glory-seeking for self, and arrogance. Tell me if that is not the default mode of all of our hearts. Isn't it? Okay, let me ask this. Parents, did any of y'all need to teach your kids to be sinners? Did you? Did you say, okay, you're now two years old. Let me teach you how to steal something you want that someone else has. Did you do that? I hope not. Did you have to teach them to be selfish or covetous or deceitful? No, because that's the default mode of all of our hearts. We are, says the psalmist, brought forth in iniquity. We don't need to be taught to be selfish and self-aggrandizing. We just are. Now, let's mix our metaphors. All of you, I'm sure, have brought a piece of technology in the last few years, right? A new piece of technology. When you open the box, let's say for a new cell phone, it comes with default settings, right? A generic ringtone and text tone, a default wallpaper, default home screen and arrangement of icons, the default sleep timers, all kinds of default settings. To get it to be what you want it to be, you have to be intentional to go in and change the default settings, right? You have to do this intentional work and take the time to change the settings. Well, the Holy Spirit means to change our default settings. He means to go into our default settings of selfishness and vain glory and division and rearrange it all. To meet the desire that Christ has for us to look more like him. And looking more like him looks like being united in one purpose with our fellow church members, never thinking of ourselves, only thinking of others. And this can happen because the spirit that indwells and binds us to one another makes it possible. But we have to be intentional. Don't you, do not you realize this? Day by day, week by week, month after month and year after year to pursue this posture. Paul saying that those who have given their allegiance to Christ Show forth that allegiance by having the posture of verses 2 through 4. A selfish, self-centered, divisive posture stands starkly against Jesus and his design and will for the church. Instead, church members are to have the same mind, same love, same spirit, and same purpose. Now, does that mean that all church members must have the same opinions and never disagree? Is that what that means? Of course not. That's not at all what Paul means. He doesn't mean that church members, membership means you have a room full of robots who agree about every little thing. What he does mean is that church membership means being united around the same goal and that being the glorification of Christ Him at the center, and what it means to be God's people. It means the same mindset in the Lord. Not have the same opinion about everything. It means knowing what things are first importance and not elevating secondary and tertiary issues to first place. Overriding the gospel as the primary concern of the church. So let's take the worship wars, for example, which I love to rag on because they're so silly. If you prefer contemporary music, that's cool. If you prefer hymns, right on. If you prefer piano, awesome. If you prefer guitar, mazel tov. Keep liking those things. It doesn't matter. But to have this posture that Paul is talking about is to approach worship service and say, I'm here to worship the triune God with my fellow saints, whatever that sounds like. My primary concern is the glory of God and singing with my brothers and sisters, and I have a CD player at my house that I can listen to whatever music I want. I won't make this about me, plus worship isn't just music, it's the whole thing. The unity of mind is to agree together that Christ is king, and he has handed us his mission to be done in his way for his glory. It's to say, you know, I would prefer this or that, but it doesn't matter because this is about Jesus and my family in faith, so I will put my preferences on the shelf. I will not let it divide me from my family in Christ, and I will give up myself for the sake of Christ and others. The last thing I will do is advocate for myself. Do you see? Fee says... Selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primary dictates our behaviors and values. People with such a mindset not only stand against the apostle, their dear friend, but also over against God, whose son fully displayed God's character when he took on a servant's role. A healthy church, then, is a united church. Nothing speaks quite as profoundly to the inherent sickness of a church than disunity, division, and factionalism. You want to see how healthy a church is? Apart from its doctrine and whether or not it has biblical membership and polity and preaches the word faithfully is to ask how united are they? Division speaks strongly about the unhealth and misplaced priorities of a church. Do you know that? Like, Read this and tell me that that's not true. Because it's the opposite of the mind of Christ. It stems from not having the same mind about the gospel. Relegating Jesus to a secondary or tertiary place in the church, stealing glory due God alone, and considering, considering self more important than not only others, but even the gospel itself. Because when we are focused on Christ's glory and mission, we'd have no time to mess around advocating for ourselves. And if we're busy fighting and squabbling about things that won't matter in 100 years, let alone 10 million, then we don't have time for the gospel and its advancement in the community because that alone is enough to keep us busy. (laughs) Where does division come from? From selfish ambition and vain glory. So the surest safeguard against division is considering others more important than oneself as a basic orientation of the Christian life. Paul says, look again at verse 3. How much does he say we should do from selfishness and empty conceit? I want you guys to get Pentecostal real quick, okay? and speak, all right? <laughs> How much, I want everybody to say it, how much in verse 3 does Paul say to do from selfishness and empty conceit? Nothing. Nothing. This word, selfishness, is the same word Paul uses in Galatians 5.26 when he talks about people devouring one another. And you see this word empty conceit literally means empty glory. It is glory thievery. It's attempting to be the one who gets first place, first preference, first consideration, and thus is an attempt to rob God of glory due him alone. The antidote is humility and considering others better, which means that you allow others' needs to surpass your own. And humility is not this, like, false modesty nor self-abasement, okay? Rather, it's a proper estimation of oneself as create creature before creator. In other words, humility isn't this kind of navel-gazing self-depreciation. Rather, it's realizing one's proper place in light of the gospel. Realizing one's need for grace, one's forgiven state, one's partaking of the streams of grace that flow from Christ's open hands, which means knowing that one needs outside rescue from God and outside help from brothers sisters, and sisters in Christ. It is a realization that we have neither merited nor earned nor deserved anything, but stand before our Creator indebted to His loving kindness. True humility, you understand, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And it's even really thinking, it it isn't even really thinking that you're humble, because the insidious thing about sin is that you could actually become proud of how humble you are, right? Like, if you think, I'm very humble. Like, it's gone now. If you were humble before that second, you're now proud of how humble you are, right? C.S. Lewis put this well, he said that if you met a truly humble person, you really wouldn't think about how humble he was. You would rather come away remembering how much they seemed totally interested in you. He said, if you met a really humble man, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Tim Keller adds in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, which, cheap plug, you could buy at the bookstall in the foyer for two bucks, all right? He says, true gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself altogether. This is the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And that's what Paul is calling for here. And this humility, this utter other focusedness, this concern for the well-being only of others leads us to our third point. Our last two points will be shorter than our first two. Point number three, church membership means submitting to the church. Submitting to the church. I'm just going to let that word hang out for a sec. When I said that word, submit, everyone just thought, yikes, Submit? I don't know about that, right? Because submission, it's one of those tainted words, isn't it? It's tainted. Not only because we, we enlightened 21st century people fancy ourselves as the masters of our fate and the captains of our soul, but because that word has been abused and tainted by ill-willed people. And I get that. No one wants to submit to anyone or anything, but we need to be a clear about what we mean when we talk about submitting to the church, because we can't just Throw it out because sinful people have hijacked it. It's a biblical word. And it's actually a better way of talking about joining a church than even the word join does. In fact, submission to the church and its leaders is commanded in Ephesians 5 and Hebrews 13. So what does it mean? Well, look at what Jesus did in 2 5 through 11. He submitted his will. And even his ability to grasp and benefit from divinity for the sake of others. He functionally submitted himself to the Father and was obedient to death. And Paul tells us to emulate that posture. But now consider everything we talked about in our last point. Is this posture of 2, 1 through 4 not submission to the church? Or think back to last three weeks. Is church membership not submission to oversight and care of your walk with the Lord by the church? Is it not submitting your own desires for the good of the whole body? Is it not giving fellow members permission to speak hard words into your life for your good and your growth? Is it not joining together with a singular purpose and goal and motive, doing nothing from selfish ambition or empty glory, and considering others more important than yourself, not submission to the church and elevating its gospel priorities over your preferences? Lehman says, If Christ's submission is our model for looking to the interests of other, then we are called to do something more involved than check off a list. We are called to wrap our identities with fellow church members and share in their lives. It involves giving ourselves to the church, not just giving ourselves while remaining at a safe distance. How do we give ourselves to the church for Christ's glory? We involve every area of our lives. We give ourselves physically, socially, affectionately, financially, vocationally, ethically, and spiritually. Submitting to local church is, in one sense, submitting to loving ugliness. It's submitting to love our enemies, other sinners who have their own visions for glory that don't match our own. But this is how Christ loved us. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Christ loved us with a love that transforms the ugly into the beautiful. So should our love for our churches be. Church membership is, in a sense, Pouring oneself out as Christ poured himself out. It's an emptying of oneself for the good of others as they empty themselves out for your good, just as Christ did. Because when it says in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, it doesn't mean he lost any of his divinity or anything like that. It just means that he poured himself out. When we submit to the church, we don't lose our individuality or uniqueness. We simply pour ourselves out like Christ did. So if Paul were filling out one of those surveys I handed out before this series, which, by the way, if you have one, I need them. So for love is all is good and pure, please return those to me. And if he's filling this out, he comes to this statement, every member should submit to other members. He would circle strongly agree. But instead, the idea of submitting to one local church is a stumbling block for us. Like I imagine many of you came across that on the survey, and had to think a lot about that, because the idea runs counter to not only our culture, but our own hearts. But Paul is putting before our eyes the fact that the king of all things voluntarily submitted in order to secure your salvation, and he did it in a way that, he, that didn't seem to make sense, he didn't storm Rome on a noble steed, sword in hand, to kill Caesar and set himself on the throne. That would have made sense, and it's what Jews through thought the Messiah would do. He instead allowed the powers to kill him. He won by losing. He won by crucifixion and resurrection. In him, the fullness of God was wiser than man. And so Paul is saying that if you want to know how to do Philippians 1.27, to conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, look no further than your Savior, and emulate him and his self-sacrificial and obedient life. We then submit ourselves to one another for our good and for one another's good. What will this do? Last point, number four. Church membership submits for the sake of the family of faith and the witness to the world. Church membership submits for the sake of the family of faith and witness to the world. You see what Paul says in 12 through 18? He's, he's pulling all of this together, okay? He's saying that you, plural, work out your, plural, salvation singular, with fear and trembling. This is a corporate call. Okay, so if there was, let's, let's say there was a Southern Standard Version of the Bible, Verse 12 through 13 would say, work out y'all's common singular salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in y'all, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What does it mean to work out your own salvation? He's not talking about getting saved. He's saying that you are to live out your salvation ethically the way that Christ commands us for you to emulate him. So it's just obedience. But did you notice that he says that it is God who is at work in y'all? It is God who supplies the power to obey. So if you look at all of what we said, and you're thinking, I just can't do this, you're right. <laughs> you can't. And that's kind of the point, right? You need to lean into the power of God. You need to lean into the Spirit at work in you and amongst the church to be able to pursue biblical church membership in this way. You know, there was a, you may have heard me use this illustration before, but there was a famous incident that happened just before World War II in a town in North Texas. And there was a fire that broke out at the local school, and it killed 263 kids. Well, after the war, they couldn't do it during the war because the war effort needed the material, they rebuilt the school. This time they had this like, state-of-the-art sprinkler system. And they even like, gave people tours showing off this high-tech, effective sprinkler system. So if there was a fire, they were saying, this new system would be able to handle it. Well, after several years, the town grew and the school grew, so they had to expand. And you know what they found? The sprinklers were never hooked up. Never hooked up. Can you believe that? Like, that they would have such a great sprinkler system at their fingertips in light of this previous disaster, but would never hook it up or tap into it. So if there had been a fire, guess what? The results would have been disastrous. Now you look at this passage, and you look at the others we've covered in this series, and you think, how can any of this actually be realized in the church? How can it possibly look like this? It could be like this, albeit imperfectly, by simply tapping into the source. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit... If any affection and compassion, if any consolation of love, if any encouragement in Christ, have this attitude in yourself, which also, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and work for his good pleasure. You see? Why are there divisions? Why have we had divisions in our past? Because we weren't tapping into what was available to us in Christ Jesus, written here, Plain as day, because we elevated non-essentials to essential spots, elbowed Jesus to the side, and we didn't love each other enough to tell each other that such things are wrong. So what would have happened if that school had a fire? It would have been a disaster with a lot of casualties. What has happened when we had different agendas and different concerns? Didn't have the same mind, didn't put the gospel first. Disaster. Casualties hurt witness before the watching world because then look what paul says in 14 through 18 he says to do how much of these things without grumbling and disputing all things paul gives no space for grumbling and disputing because as we've seen in our study in exodus grumbling is a form of unbelief it's telling god he's doing a lousy job at this running the universe business and if we were in charge we'd do much better which, as an aside, if we go through all this series and we say, I don't, like what this, I don't like what has been said, I don't like what these passages say about church membership, we should just do it the most pragmatic and comfortable way or the way we've always done it. That's just a form of grumbling. It's standing over God's design for the church and saying, yes, I see what God has said through his word about the church, but I like my way better, which we can never do. But Paul says that we ought to do the things he has said through God's empowering for God's good pleasure in the midst of a crooked and perverse world because we will stand as lights in the darkness. Like I wonder if you've ever gone have you ever gone way out in the boondocks like just away from any city lights and just looked up at the stars. Have you done that? And and, and it's a an credible thing to behold, isn't it? Like this pitch black Sky dotted with thousands and thousands of diamond-like stars shining and piercing the blackness. That's the picture Paul is painting here. He knows Philippi is dark. He knows the Hellenistic world that these people live in, look down on humility and lowliness and weakness and submission to others, and he knew the world would stay dark until the end of the age, and it's in this space that he's calling the church to shine like diamonds on the dark canvas of the communities in which they find themselves. And he knows that believers will shine brightest when they shine together. One flashlight does very little, but if you join it with hundreds, that will shine in a way that one or two can't do alone. And if we read Philippians 127 through 2.18, and we see all this stuff that pushes back against us, imagine how it would sound to a non-Christian Imagine how it sounds to the self-professed Christian utterly separated from the local church. Now imagine how a local church actually pursuing these things would look to a community in darkness like ours. The church would shine like stars against the canvas of a dark sky, wouldn't it? Because biblical church membership will stand out to the world, the world will be forced to stand up and take notice that a church that has high expectations in an environment for grace in a world of low expectations and low commitment. They will take notice that a group of people who have very little in common standing shoulder to shoulder to push back against the darkness in one another's lives. It will be peculiar to see. A group of people with all kinds of different opinions, putting them aside for the sake of the singular gospel goal of Christ's glory and one another's good. It will look strange to see people allowing the gospel they profess to inform how they do nothing from selfishness or vainglory, but embody humility reminiscent of their Savior because he's empowering them to count others as more significant than themselves. It will look attractive to see people who seem to believe what they say about loving God and neighbor and loving each other truly without grumbling or disputing. A place like that will be like a lighthouse or a city on a hill. Piercing the darkness and calling others to know the transformative gospel that informs everything they do. You want to know what we're talking about when we talk about biblical church membership? That's what we mean. That's what Paul wants. That's what the triune God not only wants, but offers the available resources to pursue. Is that what you want to? All of history is pointing to and leading to and getting closer to the day when verse 10 is a reality. Every person, every created being that you have ever met or seen or heard about will one day bend knee to King Jesus and confess him as Lord of all things to the glory of God the Father. Some to their vindication, others to their damnation. And those are the only two roads. As a church, as an embassy of the kingdom of this cosmic Christ, it's our job to usher one another to the day of vindication. It's our job to go and get as many people as possible and tell them about this beautiful Savior as far as it depends on us, keep them from damnation. Biblical church membership points us to these things because those are primary, uppermost reasons why the church exists. We all have to make a choice if that's what we want to see and if we will pursue it. Let's choose this model. And let's pray for God's empowering. And let's follow the Spirit's leading. And let's confess Christ as the center of all that we do to the glory of our triune God.